Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Again, this is hour two of Mornings with Carmen. It is the 17th of February, 2022. I'm Carmen LaBert. You are listening to Faith Radio. Okay, and um, we're going to have like a a cold start. And that cold start is I'm bringing Peter Kapsner on right here at the outset. Dr. Peter Kapsner, welcome. Thank you for joining us, um, even in this opening segment, because you and I have a lot of ground to cover. Yeah, the the flurry of headlines that you have sent uh, this week and back and forth, Carmen, I think I could have come into studio around 2 o'clock in the morning. We didn't even need to go live. (laughs) There were just so many headlines to cover on this. uh, Yeah. Okay, so we're going to start with the resignation of a Roman Catholic priest. This is a story, um, you can read it lots of places. I am reading it right now from NPR. Uh, And so let me give you the top line of the story so that folks will know what we're talking about. Uh, An Arizona priest used one wrong word in baptism for decades, and all of those baptisms have now been um, regarded as invalid. Mm. And so reading here again from NPR, uh, a Catholic priest in Arizona has resigned after he was found to have performed baptisms incorrectly throughout his career, rendering the rite invalid for thousands of people. So the Catholic Diocese of Phoenix announced this on their website. Here's let me, um, let me just walk through it this way. He asked all the right questions. The people answered the questions in all of the right ways. Um, Faith in Christ was acknowledged. Water was used. These people were baptized as Christ commanded in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The problem is, according to the Vatican in what sounds like a grossly Pharisaic ruling, um, he said we when he should have said I. And so thousands of baptisms performed since 1995 by this one priest are now regarded as invalid and every other sacrament that all of those thousands of people have participated in since then, including um, confession, confirmation, communion, marriage, all of it, according to Roman Catholicism, now void. Yeah, I mean, it's it's there's a lot of pieces and parts of this story, and, and you hit at the at that fulcrum point of where the Catholic Church is taking issue with this. And and just as a quick qualifier, I grew up in the Catholic Church. I have a deep appreciation still to this day for, for much of what happens within the Catholic Church. Like any religious organization, it obviously has um, has perpetrated some incredible pain and violence in people's lives too. So so it's the both and. And, and within this baptism conversation, when he switched the word, uh, we baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit to, uh, or I'm sorry, I baptize you to we baptize you. When he made Made that that linguistic choice, that switch, um, he really was violating Catholic understanding of the role of the priest, who is the mediator of the presence of of, of Christ in the midst of 
the okay. congregation. So, so I get that. But yeah. let me just, can I just say, mm-hmm. Jesus never baptized anybody. That's exactly right. And so the, Jesus so instructed his followers to baptize one another. And I think that's the point that you're bringing up. So within Catholic theology, it makes sense that there was a rendering uh, of null and void on these baptisms because the priest is meant to be the mediator of the presence of Jesus and only Jesus does the baptizing into the body. So I, on behalf of Jesus, am now baptizing you as opposed to the we. And there really is that tension point that you just identified where many other religious faiths believe in what's called the priesthood of believers or we all are the mediators together as the body of Christ. And and that at least explains what happened. Now, I agree with you that theologically, uh, we're called as priests and priestesses in the kingdom, and, and we mediate together the presence of Jesus through the power of the Spirit. So, I I mean, if he had said something like, I baptize you in the name of Allah, or something so egregious, right? And then right, I think been at so that clear. point it would have been yeah. different. But I think in this one, there probably could have been some space given to just say, oh my gosh. And he, he obviously had to resign, and uh, and, and I think... All of the people who have to go back through all of the sacramental process now, I think that's where there could have been some different conversation. <laughs> so I will tell you at my dinner table last night uh, in sharing this particular story, um, Eliana's jaw dropped and she's like, yeah, people aren't doing that. People aren't <laughs> going sure. back through right. and jumping through those right. hoops like they're going to go find another church. You know, they were baptized with water. They were baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um and 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 if you know if we can assume they've also been baptized with the Holy Spirit, yeah. right? Yep. Um, so sorry for the whining dogs in the background, but I have a thunderstorm, and now I have no way of controlling the dogs in my studio. Who <laughs> I love are your whining crying dogs, crying out in anguish. <laughs> so, um, all right. So we have to take a very brief pause, but we're going to continue this conversation about baptism. I want you to be thinking about. What is baptism and what happens when you're baptized? What did Jesus actually commission his believers to do in the Great Commission? And how did he talk about baptism in the opening verses of the book of Acts? Like, let's get a handle on this as we talk about what is baptism? Is there a right formula? Who can baptize? What happens in baptism? Like, do you know that you're rightly baptized? Mm. Yeah, all of that up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, continuing our conversation with Dr. Peter Kapsner, he and I are um, pulling some threads uh, from a story out of Arizona, but it actually has international and potentially eternal implications. There is a priest uh, in the Roman Catholic Church who has baptized thousands of people over a long career spanning from 1995 until uh, just recently when he he continues to be a Catholic priest, but he resigned his post. Um And he has been, according to Roman Catholicism, not baptizing people correctly. Um, So instead of at the point in the place in the uh, liturgy where he is supposed to say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, he has, over the course of his career, in both English and Spanish, been saying, we baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so the Roman Catholic Church has invalidated all of those baptisms and every other sacrament Mm. that those individuals may have um, participated in since their baptisms, right? Which could include like marriage. Okay. 
So, um, which is a, a sacrament in Roman Catholicism right. as well. So, right. which leads us to a question about sacraments. So, um, I am a person who understands there to be two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, things that are commanded by Jesus that he actually instituted and that he actually told us to do. Um, and I am a person who believes that sacraments are an outward and visible expression of an inward and spiritual reality. There are other people, Peter, who believe that baptism itself is actually effectually salvific, mm-hmm. that you are saved in baptism um, and that you are not saved without this particular formula of baptism in their particular expression of the church. This is Roman Catholics, Churches of Christ, Lutherans, Anglicans. Like, it's amazing the list of people who actually believe that this water right baptism is not only necessary, but effectual for salvation. There are others who have um, even more distinctive understandings of baptism. Like, if you're not baptized in their local expression of the church, you're not, you're literally not saved. So baptism is um, a big conversation, but I'm not sure that we talk about it very much. Yeah, I think it, it's a conversation that can be fraught with peril because it really is for many people the, the heart or the expression of their faith life. And, and you've just, in, in your two minutes there, you touched on a number of different ways in which people understand it, including that uh, it was about the fourth or fifth century with Augustinian theology, a guy by the name of uh, Augustine uh, of Hippo. And he was the first to suggest that baptism was a ritual or a rite that would wash away an original stain of sin that if that stain of sin is not washed away, then your, your, your distant future in terms of when you die is going to be heading towards hell. And so baptism was seen as, as the mechanism by which you could be washed clean and then be fit for heaven. That's very different than the early church's understanding where what you just said, believers would go into the waters of baptism, having decided after about a two-year period of what's called a catechism. I'm sure many of our listeners are are familiar with the term a a catechesis or catechism or a period of training. They would go through it for about two years and they would say, I understand that in this world and in my life that I am subject to the power and the curse of sin. And I want to live by a different kind of life. I want to, to have that power and curse of sin put to death and then replaced by life within the spirit um, where, where the, the empty tomb conquering power of sin and death can now become part of my life. So after two years, they would uh, go to Easter vigil uh, the night before Easter and they would stand and face towards the uh, West, which was seen as the place of darkness and the place of Satan. And they would renounce the power of sin and darkness and, and the demonic kingdom in their lives. And then when the sun would rise that morning on Easter Sunday, they would turn towards the East and go to the waters of baptism. And the community there would um, baptize them. They would plunge them under the waters uh, as a way of saying, we are putting to death sin in your life. Um, Jesus is doing that under these waters. And when you come out, you will be then confirmed in the life of the spirit and a church official would anoint their heads with oil and then they would head to the communion table. And that that's how the early church understood it. But it's taken a lot of different variations since that time. And people, I think, are really confused. And, and, and it's what you said. We don't talk about it enough. And there's so many different traditions. And it's so important to our faith that I think to break open the box and really try to um, understand the the history of it, why there's different expressions of it. Should believers be baptized? Like all of these questions I think need to come to the table because now you're talking about from this headline, how many thousands of people are probably really troubled in their faith journey and we don't really have a way to talk about it. Yeah. 
And you and we haven't even broached the topic of infant baptism versus believer baptism or sprinkling right. versus full immersion. Like, oh, oh yeah, on and on and on. All right. Well, let's um set this baptism conversation aside for just a moment. Um, did we already take a break that we're supposed to take? Or Paul, do I have to take another? I don't know. Paul is probably going to start yelling at us pretty quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you you know Paul. You can see his it's his so, brow furrow in so studio crazy. here, Carmen. I, I know. Hate, <laughs> I know because I really want to have this conversation with you about a pastor who. Um, in the process of casting out a demon in a woman in his church. Um, allegedly, um, six other women in his church were identified by the demon as witches, and he called them out in worship on Sunday. And so I thought maybe we should talk about that. I think that's incredibly fair. Do you want to okay. do that now or should so, we, take, should no, we step away we have for a to minute? Take, no, that was my tease. And that was your that tease. That was the way to be sure nobody left. Okay, I'm not leaving. So are you kidding? That's so a great So don't go tease. anywhere Indeed. because Peter and I are going to talk about potential witches in churches. Because that is now. You are listening to Mornings with Carmen on Faith Radio, and I'm Carmen LeBurge, and I am in conversation with Dr. Peter Kapsner, who is a professor at the University of Northwestern St. Paul, and also the person who hosts this program, when for various and sundry reasons, I cannot. <laughs> I bring you a headline today from Religion News Service about a pastor. His name is Greg Locke. Um, he has a, a, a large, thriving ministry in Middle Tennessee. And uh, he says that demons told him the names of, first and last names, of six witches in his church. And on Sunday, um, he called them out in the middle of a worship service. Uh, He says that the demons revealed the names of a group of, quote, full-blown spell-casting witches who had been sent to infiltrate um, his church. And and then apparently over and over and over again, he told his congregation that he was not lying to them. And that's actually the part of this that I wanted— um, I wanted to talk about if a pastor has to keep telling you that he's not lying to you, at some point, do you not think he's mm. lying to you? <laughs> Come on. It's that phrase, to be honest with you, right? That that always puzzles me a bit. It's like, well, so was the rest of our life not honest together when people have to keep saying that thou dost protest too much. And oh, gosh, mm-hmm. he, he has a long history, right, of um, yeah. dogmatically he's... talking about social issues or things going on independent of any accountability. Yes. Independent of any accountability, I think, is a huge part of this conversation. I also think that you and I maybe can help one another um, examine how do I recognize false teaching? And if and when I recognize false teaching, what do I do? Because I can tell you, um, had I had I, Carmen, been sitting there by some strange for some strange reason, had I been sitting there, I would have gotten up and walked out, which would have led him to conclude what, based on the threat that he made to the people. Yeah, you would have been one of the witches in the congregation for sure. Yes, yes. If anybody got up, if anybody coughed, if anybody looked askance, they were going to be called out as witches. And since um, the posting of this sermon, we have learned that not all the witches are women, that two of the names given to him by the demons were men. And so it wasn't even going to just be women who were going to be called out. There were going to be uh, men as well. Um, so I think that when someone is threatening you from the pulpit, that is a really good indication that you are under a false teacher. 
Yeah, I, I, absolutely, Carmen. I was, I was trying to think of some of the, the potential characteristics to at least be mindful of. And, and maybe these characteristics, independent of one another, uh, are not something to necessarily worry about. But when they come together in sort of this toxic stew, uh, they, they create a reality that I, I think should be questioned. And, and those characteristics that I'm describing, we've already listed one, a lack of accountability, a lack of people that are speaking into the direction of the church or the organization, the ministry, whatever it is. Now, that in and of itself, there are some times where leaders have to stand alone. It, it's not that often, but it, but it certainly happens. We just were talking on Bill Arnold's show yesterday afternoon as part of the, the Faith Radio Network about the prophet Micaiah, who had to stand alone in the midst of, of 400 prophets uh, that were that were they're leading the kings astray. So that can happen where a pastor needs to stand in the midst of something. But when you combine that then with uh, the word dogmatism or somebody who... Um, will not be willing to think any other direction, who will just declare stuff as true without taking any other input from other angles. Now you're talking about an, a, an intellectual and spiritual dishonesty. They're not willing to to talk about stuff. They say my way or the highway. So now you have two characteristics of lack of accountability, dogmatism, my way or the highway, and then you combine it with this third characteristic, uh, which is an unusual charisma. People tend to follow. Mm-hmm what's going on and you and again it's not bad to have charisma but you put those three things together and i think now you're talking about the descriptions of the various ways in which many unfortunately many church pastors have fallen because they've been in this toxic stew of lack of accountability dogmatism in their teaching and uh, and then this charisma that somehow seems to charm people into things that's when all of my alarm bells go off Okay, so everybody on the text line, first of all, people are super interested in this, so thank you so much. Um, Maybe you're not aware of this, but you can always text uh, me during the show, 877-933-2484. The text line's blowing up, and everyone, everyone (laughs) is asking the same question and saying the same thing. Why is the pastor listening to demons? Uh, Why is the pastor communicating with demons? Indeed. Uh, Stephen asked it this way, um, shouldn't we be questioning how and why this person is communicating with demons? Well, yes, absolutely. <laughs> that seems I to be a sign all, as well, Carmen. Yes, okay. You guys, um, you guys are on it. Um, and so, yes, you are exactly right. Now, what, um, where this started was an exorcism. So he was in the midst, apparently, of an exorcism from one of his church attendees when the demon who was being exercised um, shared these names. Mm. And so for those of you looking for a little bit of context there, and again, I'm reading this directly from a Religion News Service article posted at religionnews.com. Um, this, uh, the, the video of this has been watched more than a million times. The reason it's been watched more than a million times is a, uh, a pretty well-known atheist tuned into um, the service that was streaming online because of some of the things that Pastor Locke had been um, talking about in prior weeks and who had recently held a book burning of Harry Potter novels and other quote-unquote satanic works. So this was already, um, this had been teed up in some other things that this pastor had been engaged publicly uh, in which this pastor had been publicly engaged. So, um, yes, there's a lot going on here. I think that um, what Peter and I want to be sure that everybody hears is that false teaching is real. It happens. 
we as Christians absolutely ought to be able to identify it and call it out. Yes, demons lie. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. There is one gospel, um, and we need to be knowing Christ and knowing the Word of God um, and in accountable relationships with one another. And yeah, we need to be holding our pastors accountable as well. So there you go. That's yeah. my summary statement yeah, and, on this and, topic. Indeed. I think well said, Carmen. And to all the listeners texting in right now, yes, I, I don't know why we would give the demonic kingdom sudden credibility. If Satan is the father right. of lies and is spending webs of deceit everywhere uh, Satan in the, in the kingdom of darkness is, why do we suddenly think, oh, this demon is, is upright and trustworthy in terms of giving the truth? So you, you, Amen. Well, well said in all of this. You guys are all on it. Thank you. Indeed. Thank you. I guess the text line is is, uh, is on fire. <laughs> so I appreciate it. I appreciate that uh, we are seekers of the truth and speakers of it and lovers of the truth. So let's be praying for um, this man and this situation and all involved. Peter, we got to leave it right there. Um, let's take a break for Breakpoint. You are listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaVerge, and this is Faith Radio. Okay, I love that song, Paul. I've got oh, a, yeah. yeah. An old church that, choir singing in my soul. Yeah. Sweet Salvation. Yeah, Zach Williams, That's by the way. That's a great if you song. Yep. What's the name of it? Uh, old Church Choir by Zach Williams. I love that. Put that, keep that in our, like, rotation. Oh, it is. I don't know. It's it probably already is, but I like, really like that. <laughs> um, what's singing in your soul this morning? Great. Is, the, is there an old church choir singing in your soul? Oh, great is thy faithfulness or amazing grace. Um, Be thou my vision. The old rugged cross. Those are um, those are some of the old church choir hymns that are in my soul rotation. What um, what are the songs in your soul rotation this morning? All right, you are listening to Mornings with Carmen. I am Carmen LeBurge. Um, for those of you who may be new to the Faith Radio Network, maybe you're listening on the Faith Radio app, this is Faith Radio. You can find us at myfaithradio.com. We have lots of great resources there. We invite you into just a rich fellowship of God's people who gather together and seek to encourage one another in the things of the faith. If you don't know Jesus, that's our heart. We want you to be reconciled to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is our everything. He is our one and only. He is the reason we do what we do, and we want you to know him. We want you to know Jesus. Um, And so I'd invite you to visit with us at MyFaithRadio.com. If you've got questions, please ask them. You can text me at 877-933-2484. You can email me, Carmen, at MyFaithRadio.com. Nothing would please me more than to have the opportunity to introduce you to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is... um, This is the heart of why I get up in the morning and do what I do, so that one more square inch that the enemy thinks he controls, we could take back for Jesus and the gospel. All right, we are going to talk with pastor and author Rod Wilson about how we can change the world. You want to change the world? I mean, seriously, like, I want to change the world. So Rod talks about three sacred sayings. That if we were to begin practicing the use of these simple phrases, we could change the world. Thank you 
I'm sorry. Tell me more. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining us today is Rod Wilson. He has uh, served as a psychologist, a pastor, a grief counselor, uh, international teaching and mentoring ministries. He's joining us today to share about his book, Thank You, I'm Sorry, Tell Me More. Rod, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. It's so nice to be with you. Well, it's so nice to be with you as well. And those are three great um, statements, phrases, words, thank you, I'm sorry, tell me more. Uh, let's just talk about the power of those three um, those three statements and turning them into or cultivating them as actual practices. Yeah, I think one of the things that I sense, Carmen, and I don't know many of your listeners may feel this way as well, I, I feel like our problem in the culture is not economic or political or religious or organizational. I think our problem is interpersonal that just how we deal with people and how we interact with people is a real significant challenge. And I think the phrase, thank you, like when you first look at it, you think, oh, this is about manners. But actually, if I say, thank you, Carmen, what I'm saying to you is you impacted me. And if I say, I'm sorry, Carmen, I'm, I'm telling you I impacted you negatively. And if I say, Carmen, tell me more, what I'm saying is we impact each other. And I think these phrases then take on a depth and a, and a substance that goes just beyond manners to actually acknowledge that we impact each other and that that's really the core of who we are. So I appreciate, and thank you, I'm sorry, tell me more. You lay out this really simple template in the first chapter. Um, and so I'm just going to describe it to our listeners right now. So imagine just a, a table that has four columns. And the first one is what culture says and the attitude related to that. And then these three statements that we're going to talk about today, thank you, I'm sorry, and tell me more, and the attitude that is then reflected by those statements. So Rod, let's talk about what culture says. Culture says, I deserve it. What attitude is being um, illuminated there? Yeah, Carmen, I think one of the key threads in contemporary culture right now is this attitude of entitlement that to me is captured best in that phrase, I deserve it. I think the messages we get in the commercial world and in the consumer world is we deserve everything, easy credit, loans, homes, holidays, credit cards, whatever it might be. And to me, when you carry around an attitude of entitlement that you act like you deserve everything, it really keeps gratitude down because gratitude is exactly the opposite of that, that it's an expression of not I deserve things, but people have given me things and I need to express gratitude. And then the, the, the second one, uh, it's not my fault, uh, is really this, this cultural theme of victimization. That, and, you know, it starts really early with our children. We see that, you know, well, she hit me first. That's why I punched her. And we sort of, we don't want to take responsibility for doing something wrong. And we want to carry this, it's not my fault attitude. And to me, I'm sorry, is that attitude of remorse. It's, it's the antidote to victimization. And then the third one is the culture says, my story matters most. One of the things I love about contemporary culture is this notion of narrative and story and people telling their stories. But in the individualism of the culture, there's such a strong sense now that people are walking around saying, my story matters most and your story doesn't. And I think 
when we say tell me more to other people, we're really showing them care and we're breaking away from the individualism of the culture. So you are listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. We are talking with Rod Wilson about his brand new book, Thank You, I'm Sorry, Tell Me More. Um, We're talking about the way the culturally prevalent attitudes of entitlement, victimization, and individualism um, are really best replaced with the attitudes of gratitude, remorse, and care. And using these words, thank you, I'm sorry, tell me more, is the practice that Rod talks about in his book in terms of um, you know, in terms of really changing not only who we are and how we're perceived, but our relationships with others. Rod, um, when you talk about these practices, the practice of thank you or the practice of I'm sorry or the practice of tell me more, there really is a, um, I mean, practice is not the wrong word there. Practice is the right word. Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, Carmen, I think one of the things we've learned in the last three or four decades in the neuroscience literature is I think we used to believe that, you know, just saying things was superficial. And unless we really believe them deep inside, we shouldn't be saying them. But I think we realize now with the way the brain is wired, and particularly the neuroplasticity of the brain, what we say and how we behave, and to use the words you just used, what we practice actually changes us. Like if, if you walk around and say, I deserve, I deserve, I deserve, it won't be too long before you're a person of deep entitlement. But if you walk around and say thank you on a regular basis, that will begin to develop an attitude, a a way of wiring that flows out of that practice. And so, you know, I use the silly example of brushing my teeth in the morning. Like when I get up in the morning, I don't think now, do I want to brush my teeth or not? Let me think about that for a while. Let me call a couple of friends and see whether that's a good idea. I just brush my teeth. Because I think that practice is important. And so it's what the Puritans used to call holy habits. You know, why do I read scripture in the morning? Why do I pray in the morning? It's a habit that I think can become deeper and actually affect me in terms of my attitudes. I think that brushing your teeth is um, in, absolutely important. And so um, if you called me to ask, I would say, yes, please brush your teeth. So I think yes, that if we want right. to live, right, if we want to live in community with other people, if we want to live in relationship with other people, there are some practices that don't just benefit ourselves, and in that case, maybe our personal hygiene, but they actually benefit the possibility of healthy and joyful relationships with other people. And I think that that's one of the things that your book gets at and gets to. Um, and you do so using narrative and the power of story. And I want to talk about that um, next. We're talking with Rod Wilson. We're talking about his new book, Thank You, I'm Sorry, Tell Me More. Um, if you're a person who has always wondered, you know, how could I make a real difference in the world? And what's what are some of the challenges that I face in terms of accomplishing that? Well, we have some actually fairly simple answers to that question. It might be as simple as thank you, I'm sorry, tell me more. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Picking up where we left off in our conversation with Rod Wilson about his new book, Thank You, I'm Sorry, Tell Me More. Rod, let's um, let's talk about your use um, or emphasis on narratives. This is not a book where you're just like laying out abstract concepts. You're you are telling stories, and I think you are provoking us to become storytellers. Yes, absolutely. And I think one of the great things, Carmen, with story 
is that we can resonate with stories. Sometimes, you know, concepts matter, they're important, but sometimes when somebody talks about a concept, we don't resonate with that. It doesn't trigger memories or trigger experiences. We often say in the abstract, but so much of our life is, is rooted in story. And I think when we tell stories, and that's really what I've tried to do in the book, as you've said, is I think what that will produce for the reader is they will think of their own stories in this area. And I think that will be a positive impetus for change. So when I think about the the three words, and because I, I, I think the three most powerful words today are tell me more. I mean, I hear myself ask people to do that frequently, particularly when they have um, made a statement or a declaration that I actually find my mind and heart oppositional to. Like, so someone has declared something that I know in my heart and mind, I vehemently disagree with, but I need them to tell me more so that I can better understand where they're coming from, why they believe what they believe. Um, because I can't just come right out and say, well, I don't, I don't see that the same way. I don't agree with you. Cause I'm not really always exactly sure where that is coming from in terms of their own lived experience. And so I have found Tell Me More to be absolutely essential in understanding where people are coming from today. I'm wondering how you how you landed on these three. How did you land on thank you, I'm sorry, and tell me more as these antidotes to the division and conflict so prevalent in the society today? Yeah, I think... Carmen, what, what you're speaking to here is the need for us to love the other. And I think what we've moved into now in a polarized culture, particularly polarized politically, is what we often do is we stereotype and caricature people, and we don't really listen to the story behind what they're saying or what they're doing. So I tell the story in the book of this uh, homeless woman uh, that goes up and down the street I live on and with a shopping cart. And I would always drive by her as a middle-class male, never stop, never talk to her, just assume, oh, there's a homeless person that's, you know, begging and and has various ways of living on the street. And one day it dawned on me, why don't you stop and talk to her and find out her name and hear her story and find out what makes her who she is. And now we have a personal relationship, we're on a first-name basis. Uh, at Christmas last year, she was on our Christmas lifts to have for dinner. And, you know, rather than just a homeless person or a poor person, now I know Lily and Lily knows Rod and I know her story. And so not only am I closer to her, I can care for her better. But now I understand why she lives on the street. Like there's a there's a compelling narrative behind that. Uh, It's not all positive, but now I know. And so it draws us closer together and increases intimacy. Does it change the way you literally feel, like physically feel when you see her? Absolutely. Yeah, when I used to see her, I, you know, she looked like a smelly person, which, which I know is a contradiction of senses. But now when I hug her, uh, and I do, I hug her regularly when I see her, you know, when I, when I leave the interaction with her, I smell. Uh, and so I view her quite differently than I did before, but she's a person and she has dignity. You know, she's been created in the image of God not just a homeless person, not just a poor person. She's she's part of God's offspring, and I'm part of God's offspring, so we're in relationship. And so rather than do the right-wrong grid, which is, I fear, what we do right now, we sort of conclude who's right and who's wrong, um, I, I don't go into that relationship now with an evaluation grid of, is Lily wrong? 
I go into that relationship with a Lily. What, you know, tell me about yesterday. You were going here yesterday. How did that go? And then it's a genuine relationship of care and compassion. And it goes both ways. She cares for me as well. All right. Um, so you and I could have a very long extended conversation about Lily because now you have drawn me into that story. There's so much more I want to know. Um, it provokes me to want to go and do likewise with the woman who stands in the median at a particular intersection um, off of the interstate exit that I you know, take when I come or go um, from my home into the city. But we'll leave that sitting. We'll leave that sitting right there for uh, maybe a future conversation, um, because I want to be sure that we dig around. Again, the book is "Thank You, I'm Sorry, Tell Me More." Rod Wilson is the author. When we say "thank you," um, you help us see that that we're talking about the way others impact us. Um, when we say "I'm sorry," you help us acknowledge the way that we um, impact others. And when we say "Tell me more." You're showing us that we acknowledge the way that, um, you know, we impact each other, this this mutuality, this community. And so I want to talk about the word community and maybe some practical ways to cultivate genuine community, especially, um, you know, when the people around us do not believe what we believe or the way we believe in terms of our God view or our worldview. Yeah, I think it's so much depends on where we start, uh, Carmen, and our understanding of the other. Like, I, I think we need to remember that creation precedes sin. And the biblical record is very clear that we are created in the image of God and that everyone is created in the image of God. And that's why Paul in Acts in one of the sermons uses the phrase, we are God's offspring. And so while somebody may have a lifestyle or a way of being or a belief system that we don't agree with, I think foundationally, Every single person we pass in the day is somebody created in the image of God. And as James 3 argues, you know, when you understand somebody's created in the image of God, you treat them in a way that reflects your relationship with God. So when I think of the other, and I bring the grid of right, wrong, or political affiliation, or religious ideology, or whatever it is, then I will be drawn away from people but what unites us in community is we are God's offspring. And I think one of the difficulties we as Christians have is we forget that, that the fall followed creation, but God's ideal was that everyone was created in his image. And while that was tainted by sin, uh, it didn't ruin the image of God. So everybody uh, is part of God's community in a fundamental sense, and I need to treat them that way. And then as I get to know their story, I may find out that we need to talk more about our share, our belief systems that aren't shared or our religious commitment that isn't shared. But community comes from acknowledging, first of all, we're all created in the image of God. Mm, I think that's so helpful. That's so helpful. Do you want to practice um, a, a very simple uh, rhythm that's going to help heal your relationships, strengthen your connections, and ultimately change the world? That's what Rod Wilson is offering up in Thank You, I'm Sorry, Tell Me More. Rod, where can people um, connect with you and find more information maybe online? Yeah, probably the best way is to uh, just Google my name, Rod Wilson, and go onto Amazon. And there's biographical information there, this book and other books that I've written. Uh, that would be the best way to connect with me. Awesome. Yeah. 
Awesome. That's fantastic. All right, Rod, um, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time today. Thank you for helping us um, identify some phrases that we can then begin practicing and, and through them to really, you know, enter into redemptive relationships and community with others. Thank you. I'm sorry. Tell me more. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. When When we think about parting words, because, right, we're at the last couple of minutes together today, um, I don't want this to be like a throwaway. Like, I want you to consider the way we greet one another, the way we embrace upon seeing each other. Maybe you just tuned in um, and I want to welcome you. I recognize that it's like two minutes to go, but I still want to say welcome. And I'm so honored um, that you're spending this time with me. My name is Carmen. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. This is Faith Radio. You can find us at myfaithradio.com. And yesterday at the very end of the show, I um, I heard myself say something that I hadn't quite planned to say. And then after I heard it, I thought, <laughs> I really like that. So I normally at the at the very conclusion say, you know, have a great day and God bless. And yesterday, because we had been talking so much about grace, I said, have a grace day and God bless. And then I decided I I really like that. I think I want to start saying that. I'm wondering if I can adapt my speech when I'm parting company with someone. If it just instead of saying, hey, have a great day and God bless, I could start saying, have a grace day and God bless. And it made me think about um, the, the sort of benediction, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. I, I want to pray that over you right now and send you forth into the world that God so loves with the keeping and the blessing and the shining face and the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So would you receive that? Would you receive this blessing? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. I don't know about you, but I need the mercies of God new every morning. I need his all-sufficient grace. I need his presence and his light and his love. I need his blessing and his keeping. Maybe you do too. Have a grace day. And God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.